I'd say culture comes up first and creating a sales culture is, is two-edged sword. And, and you know, there's, there's an opportunity, there's a lot of unicorns out there now who are growing by leaps and bounds in opportunities and you know, in their, across industries. And a lot of those companies are very sales-driven cultures. What happens? To, with that. Well, there is organizationally, there's a point where the organization has to either catch up and support all that sales if if that's been the focus. And there's always sort of lack of a better, you know, back to the comment I made about between marketing and sales. People who support the customer and the sale post the sale have to be sort of, again, part of that conversation. It can't be a disconnect. I sell something, I throw it over the wall. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. We're also excited to share that we're now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, a fantastic opportunity to spread our message and our impact through this fantastic network of podcasts. Today, we have Bruce Fader with us, and the title is Get Ready to Grow, Strategies for Aligning and Amplifying Your Sales Culture, Process, and Outcomes. Bruce has led and grown many organizations, many times by multiple factors over short periods of time. So Bruce knows something about growth, in particular, growth based upon sales process, sales understanding, and sales approach. And today, Bruce is here to talk with us about the differences between marketing and sales, why salespeople fail to meet objectives, why organizations come up short when it comes to their expectations and their goal setting. And most importantly, what are some of the disconnects between desires for growth and the sales processes and people and leadership that are in place to achieve those objectives? It's a rich conversation about sales and Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are so excited to be back here today with a guest, and we're going to talk today about growth. Now, most business owners say they want to grow, but many don't know how to grow. And then there's always this conversation, are we growing? Are we scaling? Are we doing both? And we think that growth is just about more, more, more. But as we're going to hear today from our special guest, Bruce Fader, it's a lot more than just go out and grow. There's strategies to it. There's culture elements to it. So this is going to be a rich conversation about growth. And Bruce Fader is the founder and managing partner of Fader Global Consulting Group. He, that organization, has, they're going in their 11th year right now. Bruce has over 30 years of experience in leadership, senior operational positions, and a wide range of industries. You're going to hear about this today. Early on in his career, he was the CEO of an organization called Thompson First Call. And under his leadership, that organization grew from 12 to 15 million to a couple hundred million dollars in a very short period wow. of time. He then went on to become the CEO and president of World Street, which was an innovative fintech startup. Uh, once they, then they sold World Street and he became CEO of Weiss Ratings. 
The bottom line is Bruce, for much of his career, has been a CEO and president. He's been the person that's responsible for not just growth, but culture and teams and all the things we talk about today in leadership. So it's going to be a very rich conversation about all things leadership and growth. So welcome, Bruce. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. And a very kind intro. And I will hopefully live up to uh, to those 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 very beautiful compliments. Great to have you here, Bruce. Yeah, no pressure. You, well, maybe a little. <laughs> Absolutely. Always Bruce, feel it. give everybody um, a little bit of the backstory for Bruce Fader. Sure. So had started, um, you know, F really in, in the company that was pre-Thompson and was fortunate to grow into the CEO role after a few years of really running the overall business. And that was, you know, I was a young CEO, so kind of almost didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, we scaled the business very quickly. Um, I did some very, I thought, innovative things at the time and then leveraged that success to really go on to startup world. Um, and, you know, worked in this uh, organization called World Street. We pivoted a couple of times, raised, a, you know, a lot of venture capital uh, and ultimately sold that business to Reuters uh, kind of post 9-11. And then post that have really had the chance to get into some fintech roles, as you mentioned, Jeff, research and data roles um, as the CEO with a lot of challenges because selling research and data, you know, 10 years ago was it was not as easy to get people to understand the importance of that researcher data. So you really had to you know, develop a very fine-tuned go-to-market, a very fine-tuned sales team. So all of that stuff led me to Fader Global, which was there are companies that are struggling to how to do this and they need help. And let me, let me see if I can't you know, establish a practice as a consulting practice to help some of these companies. So, Bruce, uh, let's talk about Fader Global for a minute. Um, your bio describes it as a, as a consulting and advisory firm that helps companies develop and execute strategies that accelerate their next growth phase. Well, that's nice. But tell us more about what Global actually does for their clients. How do they help them? We really dig in, Jeff, into what's happening. And a lot of companies, and I really have to repositioned the business quite recently to focus on productizing what it is I do, because your, your point is bang on. It's a little ethereal. It's a little like, you know, what do we do? What am I going to get? And I get you. And, and I'm not McKinsey or BCG, so I've got to nail this and, um, you know, in a very more cogent way. So what you get is I get into your organization. I do a stem to stern kind of look at sales process. I look at your sales team, your comp, your marketing, your PR, kind of the whole area. And I come back with observations and recommendations, frankly. And so what you get in a very short amount of time is a go-to-market strategy, a really you know, detailed overlook and analysis of your business from the lens of sales, primarily. Because it's okay. easy for a lot of organizations, you know, boards will look at sales. If sales are flat or down, who's to blame? It's sales. Well, sometimes it isn't sales. <laughs> so you're not getting digging into the ops side. Not generally. I don't okay. dig into the, I look at product as a, again, from the perspective of a salesperson and what's on the truck and, you know, is what is there, you know, do they have a minimum value prop to sell? Um, where do they fit in the marketplace from an operational standpoint? No, I don't usually dig into operations other than if there's some glaring inefficiencies in the okay. way data is gathered or stored. Are they using AWS? Are they using the cloud? I mean, yeah. you know, basic stuff. 
And when you get into a company, how often do you see that sales and marketing are pointing fingers at each other rather than working collaboratively? All the, all the time. And it's, there, there was a cartoon in the New York Times a couple of years ago, actually a while ago, and it's, yeah, it's a dog on a leash and a guy, and they're pulling each other in the same direction. And the little cloud over the head of each of them is idiot. So I always <laughs> use that when describing sales and marketing because they both are not fulfilling each other's objectives. They should be on the same team. They should be on the same team. And invariably, I don't mean, Craig, to say that marketing needs to report into sales, but they have to be compensated. They have to be mutually aligned. Yeah. I mean, you know, lead gen is critical. Yep. Lots of marketing people that I talk to, digital marketers today, they're really good at generating activity. They're not necessarily good at saying, okay, we need to do lead gen. This is what our job is. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to connect those dots. So sales, on the other hand, you know, looks at marketing as nothing more than sort of a PR machine. And that's not, you know, that's not exactly true either. It helps uh, if the PR marketing machine is doing their job, they're creating air cover, they're creating brand awareness, which is awesome and super helpful. But it, it is, you know, to your point, it's got to be collaborative. And yeah. organizations don't somehow do that. They seem to be mutually, you know, in silos. So Bruce, let me ask you sort of a foundational question. I'm Craig and I have both heard this since the time we've been doing this podcast. They'll hear about someone like you and say, oh, he's running huge corporations. And different size businesses say that doesn't apply to us. Huh. So can you talk about sort of the universe that out universe out universality of some of these concepts? I know some people stop listening, frankly. Like, oh, he's running a $200 million business. That's not right. me. Right. The, the, where I find my sweet spot, to be honest, in these last 10 years of doing this, and the companies that I ran post-World Street were all small companies. They were all under $20 million, $10 million. And those are the companies that struggle the most because they don't necessarily have the exact right resources. Hmm. They don't necessarily have the right go to go to market. Um, a founder sometimes of a small business hasn't had the experience to understand like all of these sort of various functions and teams and how to make them work together. They get thrown in if they're a product guy or a technology person who founds a company. And I work with I'm working with one, you know, MIT guy. He's been successful selling products uh, and software, but doesn't have a clue about the next thing he's trying to do right now, which is really it's an AI business. And the go to market is very muddy. So. Yeah, big companies have those same problems, Jeff, but I, there's a lot more little ones out there who frankly need the help. And, you know, they can't afford a high powered, you know, a high powered consulting firm. They need somebody who's had some operational experience, who's been in the seat that they're in and can really provide what I would call, you know, life experience from, you know, in the seat perspective. Now, is there a particular market that you focus on? You keep talking about software. Is the software industry where you focus? No, I would say software is a part of it, Craig. It is really around what I guess generally, I was FinTech before FinTech was a thing. Okay. Um, you know, my, my chronology, you know, certainly lends me to that. Um, and FinTech is this very sort of amorphous thing that is now including AI, NLP, machine learning, but a lot of it is data driven. And so I work with a lot of data and research of people trying to sell either to corporations or to investors, you know, including hedge funds, quantitative managers, you know, folks who are trying to package up information and sometimes 
Software is the wrapper. Sometimes software is the, the, you know, the solution, but it's all driven by, you know, a lot of other sort of factors in, into the recipe. So I guess if I were to pick an industry, I would generally say fintech. Okay. And just for clarity for our audience, fintech is not technology from Finland. It is financial technology. It is financial technology. Exactly. And again, it is an expanded market segment. And if you look at any investor's portfolio today, venture or private equity, fintech, financial technology is the hottest thing they are investing in. And it can be from digital wallets all the way, you know, to very sophisticated modeling tools that, you know, that help a hedge fund, you know, more quickly assess data. So it's a very wide range, you know, of, um, uh, of, of, of technology and solutions. So, so Bruce, you talked a little earlier about some of the push and pull with sales and marketing. And we find that it is so, so fascinating today that there's so many different definitions of sales and marketing. Yeah. And I think most people, frankly, don't have it right, which causes some of the problem. So give our listeners how you define or distinguish those two, sales versus marketing. So I really look at marketing as a support function, supporting the sales effort and supporting, frankly, the CEO and the company's effort, you know, on two levels. One is there's that practical aspect of there's got to be a focus on generating interest from prospects. So there's the HubSpots, there's the CRMs of, you know, you know, using Salesforce or whatever, and then, you know, constant communication or active campaign, you know, some of these very good tools that are just out there sort of beating the bushes for salespeople to generate lead activity. Secondly, and almost as importantly, what are the big picture? Are you helping the company create thought leadership? So marketing to me has those sort of two roles that are very defined. Sales, in my estimation, you know, it is, it is what it is. I mean, you know, sales has to be a relationship-based business. All of those tools aside, it comes down to you and me having a conversation, whether it's virtually or in person, mostly now virtually, of course, and me helping solve a problem. Mm. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. And if one of the things I advocate really strongly for sales organizations today is it's no longer sort of good enough to know your products. You have to be an SME of your products. You have to be a subject matter expert of your own product and company. And you have to be an SME of your customer. Yeah. Where do you fit? How do you help them? Where is your product or data? I don't care what it is, software, data, research. How does that help your client do their jobs better, make their lives you know, easier, whatever? So I think you know, hopefully that gives you some sense. Sales to me is a con everyone loves to strive to that consultative place, you know, in a, in a relationship with your prospect or cost customer where you're supporting their decision-making. They're coming to you as a trusted advisor. That's nirvana. That way, if you can get to that point, that's yeah. huge. And that takes time. That's not just sort of a, you know, whole, and no salesperson today should be making cold calls. The web you know, I mean, God, to, to be prepared for anything today is simple. It takes 15 minutes of research on, you know, your prospect. You know, did they do a, a recent offering? You know, did they make a product announcement? Did they do a new management change? I mean, it's so simple. And, and who are you talking to? You know, what was their background? You know, what college did they go to? It, it sounds so trite and sort of simple, but it's so true. I mean, people are, you know, we're still, we're still people at the end of the day. Relationships matter. Yeah. 
Now, what do you see in when you get into an organization? If you were to look at kind of like all the different issues that, that come up, what are the most prevalent issues that you see that, that break the sales process for most companies? Unrealistic expectations by okay. management of sales. Okay. And that's where sales CROs or VPs of sales or, you know, in smaller organizations and maybe just sales managers have got to step up and be a part of the process of budgeting and planning because once that sort of, once numbers are missed, that's when the crap hits the fan. Right. And that, that things get ugly. You know, they've got to raise more capital, you know, are the people right? I mean, it just, it raises a whole host of issues. So where things get broken is very early on in the relationship. And also this, as I said, expectations by management of sales. Um, sales has to be sort of part of that conversation around the table. They can't simply be, you know, a function to say, let's just go smile and dial. Now, when you, when you look at that, I, I guess I look at the, you know, who's sitting at the boardroom. You know, it may be the chief marketing officer or somebody like that. I don't typically see a chief sales officer. Is there right. sales represented in the, bo- in the board? Typically, no. And, and what happens, Craig, a lot of times is they trot the sales guy in to make a presentation on how they're doing. It's a fit. You know, you're in there for a visit. You're a guest. Right. And, you know, you're not a welcome guest. Typically, if things are going great. Yeah, it's awesome. But, you know, usually you're in there and it's OK. What are you going to do for us next quarter? What are you going to do for us next year? And, you know, we're in the thick of 22 planning right now. So a lot of those uncomfortable conversations are happening, you know, as we speak. So you're right. They're not necessarily always part of the equation, and they should be. There's got to be that level of understanding and of where sales truly fits. And it's not just a function. Lots of non-sales people, CEOs, believe salespeople are fungible, mm. that you can plug and play. You've done this. You can do that. Um, and there's so many simple, cheap things that companies can do if you have a CEO like that you know, develop mentoring programs, you know, use senior salespeople to help bring along junior salespeople. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, here's a 40 page manual, read about our products. And I'm not joking. I literally have just gone through this. Oh no. And it's, it's awful. And one company in particular thought the CEO thought it was a good idea to let's have a sales meeting at eight 30 every day. <laughs> and let's have a sales meeting at three 30 every day. You can't make, you can't make it up. It is hell. It is absolute hell. And when I heard this, he said, you know, why don't you come to some of our sales meetings? I'm like, great. What's the periodicity? When do you, you know, when do you, once a week? He goes, no, we run them every day. I'm like, and we do them twice a day. I'm like. No micromanaging there. <laughs> oh my God, Jeff. I, and yeah, I, this was a great, this launched me into what I ended up calling the sales audit. So I did this eval to, you know, to your point. And micromanaging was a major theme because it, you know, again, what when some someone does it in sales, they're doing it everywhere. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, the CEO is burned out. He's tired. You know, there's never there's never a dull moment in his he's day. He's not doing his job. He's not doing his job. Exactly. No one. There's no thought leadership. The company is literally tactically. Every move is tactical. So it's huh. and yeah. So very very interesting. You you know, to subject for me and stuff, micromanagement is amazing. Um, when people don't understand, they think that, you know, sitting on top of something is going to make it better and they're going to be more insightful. So, Bruce, you were talking about expectations. And one thing that I remember seeing years ago, 
and confirming in conversations is that only about 10 to 15% of salespeople in many organizations achieve goal, wow. which is a horrible number. I mean, it's just, you look at that and go, okay, that's horrible. And that tells me either our salespeople are awful, <laughs> uh, they don't have the tools they need, and or maybe all three, the goals make no sense. They're just this number that someone said, well, that's, here's your number, go hit it and we'll all do well and make a lot of money. So talk about some of those realities of a goal setting and expectation setting and where it works and where it doesn't, why it doesn't work. And so from the top down, frankly, or what, you know, in reverse order of what you've, you've listed is, is that expectations around goal setting and budgets are usually done from the top down. So a number is re is, is, you know, got re achieved or whatever, a number is identified and say, this is what we need for growth. Now that growth target may be driven by a board, may be driven by compensation of the CEO. Um, it may be driven by, you know, valuations of a smaller business to get to the next round. So come hell or high water, we're going to put a, a, you know, a stretch number out there and sales will not have had a chance to weigh in on that reality until that number becomes somewhat sort of, you know, socialized. Then everybody's expectations get ruined when 10 to 15% of people, you know, are achieving that number that they had very little to do with. And here's the best part. When, when success does happen, many organizations say, oh, that was, was a layup. Some guy actually made it. Let's, <laughs> re let's redo territories or let's adjust compensation. Oh. If there's anything that can make salespeople more anxious, it's either one of those two factors, changing my territory, or let's screw around with compensation and make it harder. And this goes from big to small. I've had this conversation, you know, with multi-billion dollar companies and smaller companies who, you know, sometimes cutting compensation in sales or uh, commissions is really a function of saving money. So that lack of being sort of a part of the sales process or the budgeting process from the very beginning is where this sort of starts. Mm. So yeah, you, you hit it 10 to 15% are successful. And in that range, if they're, the number is 20% typically they're, they're closing 20% of their activity. Okay. That's still in my estimation, it's pretty stinky. That's, yeah. that's not good, but that's accepted. Now what, what drives into that Bruce, is it just that they don't have, they're not part of that discussion and saying, okay, if we're going to hit these numbers, let's, let's look at what we have to do to meet those numbers and the number of salespeople that we have, the, the expectation of each, the distance we have to, for them to travel, et cetera, all these things feed, feed into it. But why is it that sales doesn't have a chance to put that picture together for management? Because in most cases, the people that are identifying what the target numbers are believe they know better what the size of the market is. And okay, the size, the size of the market has no bearing. Well, it has bearing, but it, it, it does. does not equate back to this is how it, this is what it takes to sell something. Right. There's time, there's resources, there's relationships. Right. And your point, if you're redoing a territory, well, all the relationships that person had are out the window. Exactly. So Crazy. I guess 
how it starts is is that there is a, a an assessment and again investors in smaller companies have a have a pretty good idea of what market sizing is so again i know I, i'm bringing that back in because i do think that it's that's what gets people excited about you know investing in a smaller business <laughs> right it's that is this a billion dollar opportunity mm, maybe but let's go back and actually go from the ground up and yes. let's the sales team weigh in on okay how long is it going to take to get to x and you know people will talk about well listen we put these numbers out there but really we know that well they know that well then why don't you do that yeah um if someone's sales team is hitting their goals in june or july something's wrong obviously that's an issue yeah. and i get that that is not usually the case that happens you know rarely as opposed to you know consistently so i really believe that there's you know companies do themselves a disservice by not integrating sales into those conversations earlier on and it's not just hey let's grow 10% over last year how about that okay now why 10% why not 30% yeah, why not exactly. maybe it's 4% yeah what exactly it's there's there's relativity to that jeff absolutely and you're right cuz some markets and then also expectations get managed by the market in many cases and so you know, you can point to inferior salespeople. I always point to inferior training. You know, you've made bad <laughs> hires and you've done a lousy job training salespeople and equipping them, you know, with the right value prop, the right tools, um, and listen to salespeople. They come back. There is no better person to tell you that things aren't going well than your salespeople. They oh, are but, talking to your customers. But wait, Bruce, if the salesperson's complaining, it's just because they're a bad salesperson and they can't actually sell. I mean, why exactly. should I listen to them? Why should I listen to them? Exactly. The CEO, <laughs> I've heard this time and time again. They're just, they're just, you know, they're babies. They they can't yeah. figure it out. I, you know, they're I just I don't listen to them. And they need to, you know, buckle down. I'll get on those calls with them. Well, that doesn't usually go very well. So you're exactly right, Craig. There is that sort of feeling that sales is somehow, again, a function that if you can slap backs and shake hands and make people happy, you're going to be successful. It's great. That is no. not the way it is today. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last 20 years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, 
thought leaders and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Welcome back. So Bruce, I want to dig into maybe what some of the underlying issues are. You've talked about sales is not part of the conversation. Craig asked a question about, you know, listening to your salespeople. And they'll say, no, I think they, I, I just think they're lazy. Uh, we also know that the sales game is still played with, with goals. You know, they're sandbagging the, you know, the, the leadership says they're sandbagging and they're trying to play this game to come up with a number that's achievable. And those are all self-centered discussions. Mm -hmm. They're not organizationally focused. Mm -hmm. It seems to me somewhere in here, there's a trust issue. Is that true? And if not, what are some of the underlying issues that are driving this lack of communication, lack of collaboration in the sales process? Right. It's a great point. It really is. It's a trust issue. And that's a difficult one to address because at the end of the day, you know, there's, there, are, are, we, are we mutually aligned? And that's the, to me, the, you know, if you're mutually aligned, you're going to be good. Then trust is established. I know you as the CEO, if I'm this, you know, your chief salesperson, you know, title me the CRO, you know, the chief BDR, business development representative, wh whatever the fancy front end is, I'm going to trust that you've got my, my back, that you're not going to expose me to, you know, unachievable goals. And you're going to compensate me if I do. So I think that building that trust is critical. Uh, I think that letting, you know, a sales practitioner who's a professional do their jobs, do their jobs. Don't get in their way. You know, I always viewed my role as the CEO or frankly, is even when I was head of sales before I became a CEO, as making sure that the salesperson's path was clear, that I was advocating for them with sales and with product and operations. If there was an operational issue, you brought up in the question early on about operations, you know, operations has to do its job for sales to have happy customers. You know, product has to match up. So if I'm bringing in product ideas from customers or from prospects, are those getting listened to or are they getting put in a drawer in many cases, which is the, which is the case. And those, fun, those, those little you know, tips and functions are nice to have. They're not critical. They're not part of you know, the, what the vision is of somebody who is a product focused CEO. So establishing that level of trust has incredible range inside the company. Um, it just does. And that, that has got to be established, I think, early on. It's got to be almost part of the relationship management process when you interview somebody who's going to join your company as head of sales. You know, am I going to trust that this guy's not going to sandbag 
But at the same time, he's going to bring me a very good idea of the marketplace. And I can trust that his judgment is good and his numbers are good. And I can sell that to my board because he or she is, you know, is not full of, you know, full of baloney and trying to trying to sandbag us here to, you know, make a million bucks a year as the sales guy. So that again, you hit it. I think, I think it is trust and listening is really important. Listening and you know, making an assessment. That's, that's where the Solomon-esque, you know, job of a CEO comes in. And, you know, I know you guys also focus a lot on leadership. That to me is the magic of, you know, being a good CEO, listening to your people. Bruce, you said something really important there about trust. You said <clears throat> believing that you that per, the other person has your back, and I think in a lot of cases they don't believe that. Right. And I'm cu- I'm curious. Have you seen particular things that are creating that? And by the same token, when some solutions to that, when they don't feel like they have their back. The solutions are harder to get to the, 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 you know, I do believe it's, I don't know how prevalent it is, but certainly in the, you know, the 12, 15 customers that I've worked with over the years, there's a lot of that, you know, distrust. And I guess I hate to, you know, that's such an ugly word. Um, Or it's, I'm going to believe, you know, most of what you say, but I'm sure that there's some, you know, you're sugarcoating this or you're making it worse than it actually is until the salesperson says, listen, I'm going to get a testimonial from, you know, X, Y, Z prospect or client to tell you this. And if you don't believe me, then believe that person. So I do think Jeff, there's that, I don't know the solution other than I'm going to bring you other data points. I'm going to make you, you know, understand that it's not just me. This isn't just me saying this, this is something where, me as an independent guy coming in as a consulting guy can help the CEO uncover, is this real or not? You know, we got an issue and we don't know what the issue, what is quite, you know, we're not hitting in the numbers. Um, we don't know if it's, you know, the right salespeople. And invariably, it's easy to throw money at sales and say, oh, wrong guy, let's get a new person. Hmm. You know, long answer to your question, Jeff, is I, you know the solutions to me come into this being being aligned, being a part of the conversation, developing trust and saying, listen, here's here's how I'm going to feel. Here's how I'm going to have your back. I know you're not going to screw me and sandbag me, but don't embarrass me. Don't right. let me find that you've done that because then trust goes away immediately. Um, so, so that's yeah. So, Bruce, you talked on something else that we see as another big disconnect. You talked about relationships still matter. And most organizations in your space and certainly most, you know, most B2B people would say we're in a relationship business. But there's a disconnect because a lot of my friends who are in traditional sales roles will say, I keep hearing this is about relationships, but I keep getting pressed to do the the, the quick hit. You know, I'm, I'm pressured to not be relational. It feels like, is right. there a, a miscommunication here or is it actually a disconnect? Um, I believe there's a disconnect because what happens is many cases, small companies don't have the luxury of setting up an account management team. So having that account manager or somebody to manage the relationship post the sale 
means that, you know, the salesperson, you know, if he's expected to go back to, or she is expected to go back to that customer and sell more, has to maintain the relationship. There's got to be, you know, maybe they can get the quick hit. Maybe they can do, you know, um, a little sale to hit the number. But to go back means you still have to have a relationship. And that takes time. And if they're not being necessarily paid for that, or there's some level of you're not making enough new touches every week. And if you're not making enough new touches every week, then the pipe's not going to be filled. And, you know, this, it becomes a numbers game as opposed to a good numbers game. You know, one of the, another, you know, example, I worked with a company whose focus was trials. Let's focus on just getting trials. Well, again, usually people do what you pay them to do. If you pay them to get trials, they get trials. <laughs> you know? And they, they get, it's like, whoa. And of course, you know, what's the, what's the close rate on those trials? It was well below 20%. Oh, wow. You know, we talked, so a lot of it was, you know, you got a junior, you know, kind of junior salesperson, um, junior woodchuck, as I call them. And you got this poor guy or, or girl, and they're out there just down for dollars. And, you know, they're trying to get the trial. And, you know, we've all experienced it. They're, they're not doing their homework because they don't have the time. So they're not doing the research. So the trial is not going to stick. So yeah, maybe they get the trial and they can report at the sales meeting that week. I got 22 trials. Well, you know, what happens to those 22? And if I'm expected to get 22 next week, wow, that's not a, you're, you're a little hamster on a treadmill. It's really, really the wrong focus, but people will pay them. You know, we'll, we'll do what you pay them to do. So are all salespeople coin operated or? You know, do you see different types of salespeople? Um, so you see different types. I mean, it's just like in, in any function, um, you know, there's, yes. So there's a whole bunch of coin ops um, and there's things that are out there now that are perfectly, per, you know, suited for coin operated selling. Zoom, you know, great example. CRMs, very coin operated. You know, where does HubSpot focus? Small businesses. You know, you got to have something. So it's very simple. So they can be, you know, boom, 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 boom. There's no relationship needed. And if you take too much time as a prospect, I've seen it myself with, with, you know, a couple of the names I've mentioned, they move on. They see a buy they, you know, they're not interested in, and, you know, I'm a, you know, what I am, I'm single, a sole prop, you know, and practitioner in many cases, they can only get so much out of me and they recognize that and they're smart and they move on. Boom. Now in reality, it's like, okay, I recommend you to my clients if you're good, you know, as solutions. So I, a little bit, I'm testing the waters. So there's that coin operated aspect, which of people, and then there's some folks who are just really good at developing relationships and understanding, you know, if I'm a consultant, it's a long sales process. If I'm a consultative sell sale process, I've really got to get in and understand things back to my comment earlier about being an SME of yourself and your company and your data and your products or solutions, but your, your customer too. You know, how am I understanding how I help my customer or my prospect? So, yeah, I, I believe there's flavors of salespeople, you know, in it really just depends on what you're selling and, you know, ultimately what you're, you know, is, is it a, you know, the B2B is, has to be more about relationships. B2C is numbers. You know, you're pumping out, you know, numbers and stuff to, um, to get people, you know, things like Robinhood, for example, you know, great example of a company that's going like a rocket ship you know, and exposing, you know, investing in the market, 
to very, you know, unseasoned people. Um, you know, there's been some difficulties with that, but different, you know, different, you know, are there salespeople in Robinhood? Absolutely. You know, they're out there, you know, uh, doing, but it's probably more marketing than sales, but still that, that is an aspect of it. They are not relationship people. Uh, let me ask one more question about this sure. with the relationship side, especially in the B2B world, especially in the services world. You'll hear a phrase a lot with the salespeople about having their COIs, centers of influence, yeah. which are really a different way of saying referral sources, people that can refer them opportunities on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. And it certainly makes sense. I think it makes sense. And that feels like another one of those disconnects. Do, do you find that sales leaders or even higher in the organization don't buy the idea of COIs and centers of influence? Or is it just too slow for them? Or is it a little both? I think it's too slow. And there's that, you know, what are you giving the COI? What does the COI get for that referral? And, you know, you've, we all have networks. You know, we're all of an age where we've got, you know, lots of years of, of, uh, of building up your network and history. You can call on some people to give you a referral into something specific, a very targeted, hey, do you know someone at X? And looks like you're, you, you know, you're connected with them on LinkedIn. So there's that, can you help me there? Mm -hmm. You know, as much as anything, that's a COI, but there's also COIs internally in, in your prospect too. And that is a smarter, I believe, a smarter way to go in many cases. Because if you can get, you know, go into one door, get referred up to another, um, as long as you don't start too high, frankly, you know, the CEO sometimes doesn't always work as a good COI. Um, because just, you know, sometimes they're, they, people view that as, oh, we got to take the call because so-and-so said, you know, this is his friend, his kid's friend. Um, and so what, whatever. So I believe that the COI process, Jeff, is slow for, for most people, but good salespeople use all kinds of tools at their disposal. And, you know, that may not be the, 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 the arrow they pull out of their quiver first. But, you know, how do you break down a door? Back to the comment I made earlier, how do you create a warm lead opportunity as opposed to just the cold? I'll use whatever I got. Mm. So early in the conversation, Bruce, you talked about two phrases we haven't talked a lot about, and I want to go into those. One is you talked about the role of culture relative to sales and growth. Um, and then you also talked about the importance of incentive, incentivization. Mm -hmm. uh, pick one of those because those are really different topics but let's take one of those and then we'll dig into the other one after that which one comes up for you first i'd say culture comes up first and creating a sales culture is is two-edged sword and, and you know there's there's an opportunity there's a lot of unicorns out there now who are growing by leaps and bounds in opportunities and you know in their across industries and a lot of those companies are very sales-driven cultures. What happens to, with, with that? Well, there is organizationally, there's a point where the organization has to either catch up and support all that sales if, if that's been the focus. And there's always sort of, for lack of a better, you know, back to the comment I made about between marketing and sales. People who support the customer and the sale post the sale have to be sort of, again, part of that conversation. It can't be a disconnect. 
I sell something, I throw it over the wall. So culture, again, back to we're in this together and a happy customer that you get, you sent, you've sold somebody and you've completely, you know, outsized their expectations. You've sold them stuff that we can't do. We can't deliver on, or we can, it's just going to take a lot more time than you've, you know, than you've told the customer. And now the customer's unhappy, um, which is pretty difficult. So to me, that's, you know, it may not sound like culture, but if sales, respects the those that support them that's not going to happen as easily so again a culture of you know team is really 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 important and that salespeople, a lot of cases you know happens today they're you know they still get the perks they make the bigger money than most of the you know people in the organization um and that's great but you know I don't want to get the sloppy lollipop, you know, while you're getting, you know, the cool backpack or you get to go to, you know, Costa Rica on, you know, the president's club trip, uh, which are coming back, you know, president's clubs are coming back in, you know, in spades. So those kinds of little perks and stuff are really, you know, they, they, there's under, they stick in the craw of others who see that. Um, so that's to me, the culture has to be one that, Sales is respected for what they do because it's hard. It's a hard job. I don't care, you know, tools aside, selling is hard. It just is. And it's not for everybody. It's interesting you talk about that because for some reason over the last several days, I've watched a few uh, episodes of a very old show now, old <laughs> timing, uh, Mad Men. Oh, yeah. And that disconnect you're talking about between they call them the accounts men, which are really the salespeople, the so-called yes. relationship people, the whiners and diners. And there's a clear chasm there. And you look at that and say, wow, this is a horrible culture. And yet wonder how much of that is still true today, that there's right. this separateness between, and it's not even a competition in a healthy way. It's really salespeople looking down on others, others looking, you know, it's not a, it can be very toxic often that relationship. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I wish I could, you know, give you a statistically valid answer, Jeff, as to how prevalent it still is. You know, anecdotally, I, I got a couple of really good examples that, you know, companies have raised lots and lots of money and they're on a rocket ride and, you know, they're either going to go public or whatever. And then I've got some that are, you know, got a client right now who is a little bit more, he's almost gone soft in the other direction where, they're trying to provide a level of service and white glove service. And so support is more, is more valuable and sales is not. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't work either. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I guess I when you look at the silos inside of companies, it, it really, it, it hurts in so many ways to see this, this antagonism between departments and that, you know, there's, there's mistrust or there's, you know, I'm better than you are or anything like that. And, or my job is harder than yours. My job is harder than yours. Yeah, but That's, could you do my job? Yes, no. In a lot of cases, the answer is no. <laughs> right. The answer and is no. Uh-uh. So how do you get them on the same page so that you don't have the silos pointing fingers at each other? Well, it can potentially go back to what Jeff said, which was the second topic, you know, incentivizing. Okay. And where you create, you know, black for better. I mean, you know, money drives a lot of things. Um, of course, is it the be all end all? It's certainly one of the most important. 
if you, there's a pool of some sort created that has objectives that are common to both teams, you know, if it's support and sales, you know, if it's a revenue driven number or if it's a, you know, a survey benchmark that gets, you know, if we achieve X, you know, above a survey benchmark, you know, the company's going to designate, you know, something, you know, some amount of money that gets distributed and the salespeople participate too. I don't okay, think so like, it has. So like that would be like net promoter score on the support side. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, putting, you know, development guys, you know, tend to be more, you know, happy to work at home in a cave, you know, by themselves without interaction. Well, that's not healthy either. And wouldn't it be great if development people were somehow a part of those conversations? And so whether it's internal company meetings more frequently, which I'm not a big fan of, um, but, you know, with, with you can do those meetings, be more inclusive and have people buy in to each other's challenges. You know, here's the here's the sales, you know, here's this challenge for sales, you know, in 2022. And, you know, everybody's like, wow, that's, you know, it's a big number or whatever it might be. And here's what supports objectives are. And here's what development's objectives are. We need to achieve X. We need to get, you know, a brand new tech stack in place using all the latest and greatest tools. And that has to be implemented by, you know, the end of 22, because if we don't, you know, the current infrastructure has got to be sunsetted and dies. That's a big job. And so that, that in communication internally helps establish culture, helps establish mutual respect. We all, we all get on the same team. And wouldn't that be a cool company to work for? And I know there are companies out there that do that. Um, and that's great. And that's a great experience for anybody working in those places when you see that sort of holistic kind of thinking by somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, how about the CEO? You know, I know it's it gets um, talked about, you know, a lot. He's been in the press who managed everybody's salary up to $70,000. He cut himself from several million a year to and redistributed, you know, where salaries were. So the minimum number of people were making was 70 grand. Well, the company's having, you know, great success. Everybody's motivated, everybody's psyched. Everybody feels somewhat equal. So, you know, is that, does that suggest that we take a more socialistic view, view of compensation? Um, maybe. Um, and, you know, sales or um, CEOs, there's, there's still, in, certainly in large companies, and even frankly, midsize, big disconnect between CEO pay and everybody else's. That stuff gets more public than people think. Um, and it pisses people off. Um, and it just does. It just, that really does not bode well for establishing, again, trust, culture. You know, this guy cares about me, has my back. So Bruce, when you're looking at the role that you have as CEO, that role is very different. It's a lot more complex than somebody who's on the front line just answering support calls. There is a reason that you get paid more. Absolutely. And there is validity in the level of complexity, the level of training that you've had to go through to get to that point, to understand the complexity, to think out years, not just next week. Right. It's very different thinking. It, it is. And I completely agree. Having been a CEO. Yep. Uh, and I was early on and it was great young in my career. Uh, but there's also a reliance that that CEO has to has have on his team underneath him oh, sure. to 
you know, to, to make, to make him good, you know, the quarterback isn't always great without a great front line. Yeah. And so I'm very, you know, again, this is my personal view and I, you know, it's my opinion. I'm always, I have to be respectful of those that have supported me Mm -hmm. to get to that place. It's great to be out there beating the band and be, you know, your face on TV or, you know, whether it's CNBC or at a conference or whatever, and you're the, you know, conquering hero. Um, Not everybody, Steve jobs. Um, and so, yeah. And then compensation is such, you know, it's a little bit, there's a very high pyramid because that experience is valued. And if you did it once, can you do it again? And someone's going to pay you a lot of money because you did it once before you can do it again. That's worth it. I get it, but let's not, you know, let's not, let's not forget, you know, who got us here. And to me, that's where the back to incentivizing, you know, everybody fairly, whether it's with equity or, you know, cash, um, cash is good. Um, and bonuses get people motivated. And when you're making, you know, 60 to a hundred thousand dollars a year, a bonus of 10 grand is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's important. And whether it comes out of the blue, because, you know, you all have achieved a common goal, you know, wow, that's great. And I, I can speak from personal experience with, you know, young people, younger people that I interact with family and, you know, beyond that's really important that that is very important that there's that that and again they're not expecting to be paid like the ceo and i don't expect everybody to go run off and do what the guy did out in seattle or i think that's where he was based where everybody's salary is now 70 grand that that doesn't make sense completely either so it's you know it's it's a statement um but you know it's it's a little bit it sounds very green. It sounds almost too green. <laughs> of course, the CEO still probably owns the company. So ah, there you go. You hit on that. Oh. You hit a great point. No one talks about that. Yeah. There you go. If it's a private company, and I think one yeah. of the challenges is a lot of the the attempts to rash it. Those numbers become not rational, though. Right. In a lot of cases, there's no. You could say, well, you do multiples, but the multiples still don't make sense. That's when I think they have that distrust issue. Right. To say, despite all that you've done, it just doesn't make sense. If you've got someone making 100 or 200 times the average, there's humans can't rationalize it. That's the thing. There is a a process, uh, something called um, felt fair pay. It it comes out of requisite organization. So requisite okay. organization talks about how work gets more complex as you go up in an organization and it gets more complex in very defined ways. But with that complexity comes increased pay. And it talks about, you know, at each stage, you're, you're basically kind of doubling that, that pay until you get to the point where you're CEO. Now it's not hundred X. So hundred X is way off of, of what we're looking at there, but it could be eight X could be, you know, something like that. Right. Oh, I think, you know, eight or 10 is, is probably far, you know, that's a more, yes, I agree with that. And what I don't necessarily agree completely with that point is that the job gets more complex, but it also in many respects becomes easier because you're depending upon how you, you know, view yourself as the CEO in the company, are you the chief sales guy for the company? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, some people come out of that, but increasingly you're seeing CFOs move into the CEO role. And that's an important transition where I think, you know, investors and the market being, you know, that part of that investment side, that the transition from CFO to CEO was not something that was usually the case. 
far more prevalent today. So what's being valued is, you know, management of the numbers in a company that is established, you're sort of chunking along and, you know, we, we talked about growth and maybe they're big enough where single digits is, you know, is good growth because they're in the multi-billion dollar area. That said, is that guy's job harder or is, you know, is, and I would agree with that in a case like that, where that person's, you know, that they've had to really, you know, learn an awful lot on the job. They've had to take on increasingly complex roles and learn to, to become that, that CEO. But there's other companies that are, their, their objective is what's next, where are we going next? But at the end of the day, you know, their responsibility is to their people, to their customers and to their investors. And if you forget that as the CEO, you know, you're, you're not going to be a good one. But in that, there's also the level of vision. And mm-hmm. to me, that, that is when you're bringing somebody in from finance, I'm not saying that somebody from finance can't have vision, but usually they're looking at the numbers. And so if you get exactly. this person who's looking at the numbers, where is that growth trajectory? Where is it that we're looking at additional markets or additional transformations that we can create for our customers? You know, right. does it always just come back to the numbers? And so I, I question, you know, is that always the best thing to do? It's not necessarily the best, but it's an acquiescence of somebody that put that person, he or she, into that role that says, we believe that, you know, there's no more vision to be had. Oh, wow. Let's just manage. Let's just manage this. Well, it'd be an interesting conversation to do some research, to look at a group of companies to see what was the trajectory. I think we might all be surprised at where (laughs) their paths are. Because I personally don't, I don't see a lot of CEOs of larger companies today that came up through the sales and revenue side. That's not, they're typically ops people or they're finance people is much more typical. Because in, I believe Jeff, you're right. And I agree with that hundred percent. And you know, me as a salesperson through and through, I'm disappointed with that (laughs) because I do think that sales people are the guys that are sort of out there to some degree looking at the next horizon far mm, more. Good point. Yeah. Well, they just are. And it, a part of it for me, when I was CEO of a bigger company, you know, I literally would sit with, you know, my finance people and they would ask, and, and I was very, you know, very much, let me go to my group and see what I can get from the core business first. And what do I got to do to get to that next goal? If I got to do 30% next year, over, you know, year over year growth. Okay. I can get 10, 12 out of my core. I got to come up with something really pretty cool. Yeah. And pretty cool means you got to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall or kiss a lot of frogs, whatever your right analogy is, but you really got to get to that point where it's like, I got to try things. And ops people are not going to try things. Finance people are definitely not going to try things. They're going to manage the numbers. Right. Well, Bruce, this is, as I, as we predicted, such a rich conversation about not just sales, but culture and leadership. Um, and as no surprise, it often comes back to trust. Uh, that's certainly what we have found. Uh, so it's been a wonderful conversation, Bruce. We always want to ha- give our guests a chance to highlight or promote something going on for you or your business. And what is that? It's really, it's a great, I, one, I appreciate the opportunity and, and that's, that's very generous of you guys to do that, frankly. Um, it's, it's how to convince 
I'd love to promote more sales audit. And I say it in my literature. If people are doing technology audits, you know, and they should be very consistently, tech, tech is moving so fast. If people do an annual financial audits, why aren't you doing sales audits? Why aren't you willing to look in the mirror and test your sales process? Great point. So that's, that's my promotion. That's, that's all I really want to promote. And if, if, I can, if I need to come in to sit in the seat you know, for some period of time as the interim CEO, CRO or something, no problem. I'm happy to do that. But let me at least come in and help you look at your blind spots. Let's identify where you're not as good at really assessing objectively what the hell's going on. Yeah. Love it. Uh, and Bruce, what's the best way for people to connect with you? I, I just put chat on my site, Jeff. So I've got Slack, man. I'm cool. <laughs> Um, email certainly is fine, you know, info at faderglobal.com. Um, but I do, I literally have a chat function on there, which is, you know, Slack HubSpot integrated. So, um, you know, I'm accessible and that works. I've tested it numbers of times. Um, I haven't sort of done the launch of that yet, but that, that comes in a couple of posts later this week. Um, and you know, we're all, we're all silly. We're all, I'm always never not, you know, available. I mean, I, I, I sadly say that that I'm working more now, maybe not getting paid nearly as much as I ever did as a CEO, which is, you know, that, that, that's the downside of, of this, but it's so much more fun. And you want to solve problems. That's why you do this stuff. You don't do this because I, you know, my, I'm going to have on my grave that I've been the richest guy in the world, um, but that you've helped some people and you've mentored a bunch of people. So, you know, I'm, I'm available. Someone's got a problem, man. I love to chat. Wonderful. Uh, so, Bruce, we're going to wrap up with a single question today. Uh, one of our favorites. Let's say I want you to assume you have a chance to have dinner with someone living. Yep. Who are you having dinner with? And what's the one question you want to make sure to ask them? Richard Branson. <laughs> one of my cool, one of the coolest guys out there. Yes. I'm sort of bummed about the whole rocket thing. I think that's sort of silly. But, you know, that's just me. You know, that, that, that's, that was one of his like, uh, the one question I guess I would ask, what was the most fun? And I got introduced to Richard Branson. I love music. I wish I had gone into the music business. I wish I was David Geffen. <laughs> that would have been my gig in life. I, you know, I look at Sonos and Pandora, Spotify, all these great companies, and I just love my music. Hmm. But when Branson did, you know, Virgin Records way back when I was going to London an awful lot, I would go to that store and I would have a blast. Oh, wow. OK. It was just early on exposure and the cool stuff that he's done since then. So I, I would love to say, what was the most fun thing you've done? Awesome. Love the yeah. question. He's, yeah, he's one of my heroes insightful. for sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, he's, he's awesome. He's so much fun. And again, this whole sort of billionaire rocket sort of thing is just like, OK, really, guys? You know, let's let's not do this. This is not a good look. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce, thank you for all you brought today, and thank you more importantly for the work you're doing in the world. Thank so, you, guys, very much for the opportunity to meet you. This is my virgin experience. You know, completely <laughs> first time was like, whoa, awesome. Well, guys, thanks again for the chance. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to your favorite podcasting app, rate us, give us some comments, share some love. It helps us to get our message out to more people. Thank you so much.
you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com confident to find out more. See you on the inside. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.